Good morning, friends. Good to see all of you here today. We come here for corporate worship, Lord's Day after Lord's Day, and we show up here each time in need of God and what only he can do for us. And that is certainly true as we now look to his word. So let's go together to God who is good and faithful and gracious and pray and ask for his help now as we look to the Bible. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, you are exceedingly good to us. You are exceedingly faithful to us. And that has everything to do with you. It's not because we are worthy of that. We do pray that you would come now by your spirit as we look to your word. And we pray quite simply, Father, that you would show us yourself within your word. That you would show us ourselves. We pray that you would show us what is good for us. And most of all, we pray that you would show us our Savior. And we pray these things in his name and for his sake. Amen. Amen. Well, friends, this introduction will be quite brief. So if you are with us today for the first time, welcome. I generally try to let the plane gather some speed before we try to take off. That will really not be the case today. We have a lot to look at this morning in Mark's gospel, um, and I want us to be able to do that. And I don't want you to be here all afternoon because I do care for you. Plus, we have Gracious Pursuit at 1.30, so we're bumping up against a deadline. Amen, somebody. So we talk often here at CBC about the fact that the Christian life is status forward. It is identity forward and what we mean by that. Status forward, justified is our status in the Lord Jesus Christ, and we live from that justified status moving forward in the Christian life. It is also identity forward, meaning our identity now is in Christ. That is who we are. And then we live from that identity forward. We're not chasing after our identity. We're not chasing after our status. Those things are ours by faith, grounded in the grace of God through Christ alone. So today we're going to be looking at Mark's gospel and we're going to be considering the king and his kingdom. The king being Jesus, his kingdom being the kingdom of Christ. And so we're going to be looking not only at what Jesus has done in order to purchase and establish his kingdom. We're also going to be considering things today from the text in terms of what life in the kingdom of Christ looks like. And so it's important that we have these things in our minds and we understand we are citizens of the kingdom. We are in Christ. We are justified. And it's good for us from the word to talk specifically about how we live together in the kingdom of Christ. Do remember also, as we look to Mark's gospel this morning, that Jesus in his arrival in his earthly ministry about 2000 years ago was ushering in the new covenant era. In terms of the redemptive history of God's people, this was a huge, pivotal time. Jesus was the fulfillment of everything that had come before him in what is oftentimes called the Old Covenant that had a number of covenants underneath it, right? And so the New Covenant that is established through Christ also was the fulfillment of everything that had come before and so in our text today, Jesus is going to give us a glimpse of the realities of life in this new covenant kingdom of which he is the king. And so if you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, open them up to Mark chapter 9 and verse 14. We're going to be looking today at Mark 9, 14 through chapter 10 and verse 16. So we have a decent amount of ground to cover. We are making our way through Mark's gospel. This is the 13th of 22 planned sermons. So we are on the downhill side of it, making our way through at a decent clip. Let me now read God's word for us, all of these verses, before we look to them and try to understand them together. If you didn't bring a Bible this morning, don't worry about that. We're going to have the verses from the text up here on the screen, and you can follow along that way. Listen now to the word of God. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down. And he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. 
So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out. And the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve. And he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. And we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up and in order to test him asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, what did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant. And he said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them. 
laying his hands on them. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word. So I have six points for our consideration today, and I know immediately you're thinking, my goodness, brother, that's ambitious. And maybe it is. Maybe it is. We trust that the Lord will be merciful. Six points regarding life in Christ's kingdom. Six points regarding life in Christ's kingdom. Point number one, life in Christ's kingdom is based on faith. Life in Christ's kingdom is based on faith. We're going to look for just a minute at verses 14 through 29 of chapter 9. We see there that a boy is brought to Jesus. He has come down from the Mount of Transfiguration. He sees a commotion around the rest of his disciples. Remember, Peter, James, and John are with him in tow. And he approaches the crowd. He asks what's going on. And we find out that there is a man who has brought his son who is demonized, right? He is, has an unclean spirit who is oppressing him. He has brought his son to the disciples for healing. And the disciples were unable to cast out this unclean spirit. And so a commotion has ensued. Jesus inserts himself into the situation and he rebukes everybody in verse 19, essentially. When he finds out what's going on, he answers everybody and he speaks of their lack of faith. In other words, they don't have any. Oh, faithless generation, right? How long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? The boy is brought to Christ and then he and the father in verses 20 and 20, uh, 21, 22, 23, 24 have a little bit of a dialogue and an interchange. The father explains to Jesus this has been happening to his son from childhood. He talks in verse 22 about how this unclean spirit has tried to destroy his son over and over and over again. And then he says to Christ at the end of verse 22, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And then Christ responds, if you can, right? He says, all things are possible for one who believes. All things are possible for one who believes. When Jesus talks this way, he means that things that are impossible for man to do on our own, right? In our own strength, things that are impossible for man to do are possible only by faith. It's like when he tells us and tells his followers that with faith, a tiny amount, like the amount of, the, of a grain of a mustard seed, right? A tiny amount of faith, mountains can be moved. Like what's he saying? He's not, he's not talking in a literal sense that we're going to like rearrange the created universe. But what he means is that if there is faith, even a grain of it, unfathomable things, things that you could never do, Things that you could never accomplish on your own will happen. And in our minds, friends, we, we must be thinking all the time when Jesus talks like this, things that are impossible. We need to be thinking first and foremost, ultimately about what? About redemption, about salvation, about life with God, about deliverance from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. We see that even happening here. We see a, a boy oppressed by the kingdom of darkness in one sense. How in the world is he ever going to be delivered? Well, it's impossible for men. No way. But it's possible through God by faith, not by strength, not by work, right? Jesus does not, in any of these kinds of comments, mean that we can deliver ourselves from any earthly circumstance or trial. How do we know that? Well, it wouldn't square. That's what he's saying, that by faith, you can literally change your life and remove yourself from any hardship that would not square with the rest of Scripture that the Spirit of Christ inspired. And we know that the Spirit of Christ in inspiring the Scripture is not contradicting the words of Christ here in the Gospels. So I mean, we can think of a number of places. Hebrews chapter 11, for example, comes to mind where a number of people are commended for their faith. And we're told that some of them were delivered from their trials. They were delivered from their persecution. They were delivered from death even. But then we're also told in that same chapter that there were others who also by faith were killed, lost their lives, were sawn in two even. Think of Paul in 2 Corinthians 12 
with his thorn in the flesh. He pleads with God three times, take this away. And how does the Lord Jesus respond to him? He says, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. In your weakness, my strength is made perfect. It's demonstrated and it accomplishes its work in you. The boy's father in verse 24 says words that are universally applicable. He cries out as Jesus says these things. Jesus essentially rebukes him when he says, if, if you can help us, or if, if you can, please help us, right? Have compassion. Christ says, if you can, all things are possible for one, the one who believes. The man's response is wonderful and it's helpful. It's comforting even. He says to Christ, I believe, help my unbelief. Unbelief remains, brothers and sisters, in all of us. We can all cry this along with the boy's father. And we remind ourselves in these moments. You notice that Jesus goes on to heal the boy. We remind ourselves in these moments where we feel as this father does, where we are aware of our struggle with unbelief. We take great comfort and solace in the fact that it is not the amount of faith that we have. It is not even the quality of our faith. It is the object of our faith, namely Christ, who will win the day. Jesus goes on to cast the unclean spirit out of the boy. And in verse 28, after all of this has transpired, he and the disciples enter the house, as it's put. So a house there nearby. We assume where they were staying. And his disciples ask him privately, why couldn't we cast out the unclean spirit? What do we make of that when he says, verse 29, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. What's he driving at? Think again of the, the context of everything that's going on. Now, you can judge my exposition. You have the text in front of you. I think Jesus, again, in talking about prayer here, is driving again at this core issue of faith. What is prayer in the context of something like this? Where there's a boy who's oppressed by a demon, an unclean spirit. We realize that in human strength, nothing can be done. What is prayer? In that context, prayer in that moment, friends, I would suggest, again, this is my understanding of the text and you can wrestle with this yourself. Prayer in that moment, in that context or moments like it is simply the outworking of the life of faith. How so? In this kind of a situation, we understand our utter dependence upon God we realize our utter helplessness to do anything about the situation. And then we see our desperate need for God's grace. We see our desperate need for God to show up and work and do something that we could never do. And so we pray. You hear people sometimes say this. Well, I guess all that's left to do is pray. And, in, you know, all seriousness, it's like, well, you realize that's about all you could do in the first place. Because there are so many times in life where honestly, I mean, we are so above our pay grade in dealing with these eternal weighty realities. We ought to have that perspective more often. I think all we can do is pray here. Because we are in need, we are desperate, we are powerless. God is God. He loves us in his son. And he hears the prayers of his children. And we pray. Skip over to verses 13 to 16 of chapter 10. Continuing to think about the fact that life in Christ's kingdom is based on faith. Maybe more particularly, we might drill down and say it's based on childlike faith. And that doesn't mean immature. It means a posture. Let's look together. People were bringing children to Jesus that he might touch them. And then the disciples rebuke those people who are bringing their kids to Christ. We'll talk more about that in a minute. Jesus doesn't like that they're being rebuked. He's indignant about it. And he says, no, 
bring the children to me. Don't hinder them from coming to me. And then at the end of the verse, he says, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Verse 15, truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. What does he mean? Again, he's driving at this issue of trust, hope, faith. Simple trust, simple faith, simple reliance. In comparing this to a child, think about how Christ is illustrating this, right? Children, because they are young, do not have capacities to understand things that are incredibly complex. There are many things that children, presumably pretty small children, are not aware of. I see this in my home. You do too. We are just like that as we relate to God. It's very much like Job, you know, at the end of that book when God basically says, child, there are so many things that you don't understand, right? There are so many things that you don't understand. It's like that. We are like children as we relate to God. But think about children and how they relate to their parents in particular. Children, when they perceive that the one speaking to them loves them, and when they understand that the one speaking to them is trustworthy, children trust things that are said to them. Children trust promises that are made to them. And they don't really ask a lot of questions about that. We, as parents, we lovingly look to our children and we just say, hey, this is what we're going to do. And children respond and say, okay, that's what we're going to do. Or we look at our kids and things might seem a little bit off and they're not going well. And we look at our children and we say, it's going to be okay. And they look at us and they say, okay, okay, I believe you. It's very much like that. Christ's kingdom operates by this kind of simple trust and faith in Christ and in God and his promises and his faithfulness. Christ's kingdom operates by faith, not by works or by merit. More precisely, Christ's kingdom operates by faith in him. And what that means is that we are always looking outside of ourselves to Christ in Christ's kingdom. As we live in the kingdom of Christ, we are always looking outside of ourselves to him. This is important for us to be reminded of all the time because by nature, we are bent inward. By nature, we always tend to be bent in on ourselves and turned in on ourselves. And even in the church, if we're not careful, we will talk and act in such a way that everything will boomerang back around to us. At the end of the day, it becomes about me on a number of levels. Brothers and sisters, there is never a time in Christ's kingdom that we trust what lies within. We trust that which is without, namely our Lord Jesus Christ himself. Point number two, life in Christ's kingdom is grounded in his death and resurrection. Life in Christ's kingdom is grounded in his death and resurrection. We're going to look at verses 30 to 32 in chapter 9 for just a moment. So if life in Christ's kingdom is based on faith in Christ, we see here the kind of ground of everything, like why that's the case. This is the second time, these three verses, in Mark's gospel that Jesus talks explicitly to his disciples about the fact that he's going to be handed over that he's going to suffer, that he's going to die, and that he's going to rise again. So in thinking about how Christ's kingdom operates by faith in Christ, what exactly are we believing? What exactly are we trusting in? We're trusting in Christ, his person, amen, and we're also trusting in Christ's work in the place of sinners like us. And we get a glimpse at that work the kingdom is founded upon the work of Christ. The kingdom, in terms of its citizens, are bought by and through the work of Christ that he describes to his disciples in these three verses. When he talks of his suffering and he talks of being handed over and he talks of dying, we understand biblically that Jesus is talking about the atonement that he would make for sinners 
the sins that we have committed, our real guilt, he would make right. He would pay the price that was owed. People that break God's law pay the penalty that God's law requires. That means their life. And that means judgment in an ongoing eternal sense. And so Jesus dies the death that we deserve and takes the eternal punishment of God upon himself. And he pays that in the place of sinners. He also is the propitiation for God's people. That's a big word. That means that he satisfies the righteous indignation of God against our sin. It is right that God would hate evil. If he did not hate evil, he would not be good. And so that means he hates all evil, even the evil that resides in you and me. And so our sinning and our wickedness deserves the righteous wrath of God. And Jesus Christ drank the cup of the wrath of God and drained it all in the place of God's people. In thinking about the work of Christ, we would be remiss if we don't also consider the life that he lived in fulfillment of God's law. So we talk often about how we need more than just our sins forgiven. We need more than our guilt satisfied. We need positive righteousness. We need to have someone who has fulfilled the law that we might live forever. When God says, do this and live, he means that. And Christ has done the law so that in him, by faith, his people might live. So he's done that too. And then finally in the text as well, he talks about after three days of being in the grave, he would rise triumphantly to life forever. Through his resurrection, we know from the witness of Scripture that we, by faith in Christ, by the virtue of being in him, we too will be raised imperishable one day like he was. So we see in the work of Christ that he has rescued us from judgment. He's rescued us from wrath. He has rescued us from death. He has rescued us from sin. He has rescued us from Satan and from hell. He has done for us what we could never do for ourselves. And it is upon his person and his work that his kingdom is built. And it is in his person and his work that his people stand forever. By his wounds, we have been healed. And by his suffering, we are free. In the cross of Christ, we see the love of God and the justice of God embrace each other. It's the greatest display of the glory of God potentially in the history of the world along with the resurrection of Christ. And it is at the cross of Christ, how beautiful, at the cross of Christ that sinners like you and me exchange our filthy rags for righteousness. And it's accomplished not by work, not by merit, but by faith. Point number three. Life in Christ's kingdom is characterized by humility, love, and service to others. Life in Christ's kingdom is characterized by humility, love, and service to others. Or we might say it is characterized by receiving the weak. It's another way we could frame it. Look at verses 33 to 37 with me for just a moment of chapter 9. Jesus and his disciples, verse 33, have arrived at Capernaum. They're in the house again where they would have been staying, spending time together. He asks them, what were you talking about on the way here? Verse 34, they're silent. They don't want to say because they knew what they were talking about. We're told there in verse 34, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. Sounds like something we would do. It's good for you to see yourself in Scripture, but just make sure you see yourself in the right place. You know what I mean? We tend to often see ourselves in ways that flatter us and we ought to see ourselves in situations like this. Yeah, that's what we would have been doing if we had been them, arguing about which of us is the greatest. We're following, literally following the king of the universe, the savior of the entire world, and we're worried about who's the greatest amongst us. It speaks to our fallenness, right? Jesus is going to teach them. He's compassionate. Verse 35, he sits down and he calls the 12. We're going to talk, guys. We're going to have a conversation. He says to them, if anyone would be first, 
he must be last of all and servant of all. In Christ's kingdom, in my kingdom, he says, if you're going to be first, that is, if you're going to be great, if you're really going to be great, because Jesus knows what's up. They haven't told him yet what they were talking about. He knows. So he says, hey, guys, if you're going to be great, here's what this really looks like. You must be last of all, and you must be servant of all. If you're going to be great in my kingdom, you need to strive to consider others as more important than yourself. If you're going to be great in my kingdom, you need to make it your aim to serve others. We thought about this a few weeks ago when we considered a theology of the cross versus a theology of glory. So much of what's around us, even in our current church context, is is a theology of glory that tells us to make ourselves better. Get better onward and upward. Well, in reality, a theology of the cross tells us, calls us to something quite different. Rather than saying onward and upward, make yourself better, the theology of the cross, as Christ is articulating here, says die to yourself. Don't, don't think about getting better. Die to yourself and love and serve other people. That's the call of Christ. Jesus in verse 36, put your eyes back there. He brings a child into their midst. He takes the child into his arms, verse 36. It's a very tender thing. Jesus is a tender and gentle Savior, right? And then he says, whoever receives, in verse 37, one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me, namely the Father, right? Christ's point is this. Whoever receives one such child in my name. Well, one such child. What's he pointing out? Whoever receives someone who, like this child, is in a position of weakness, not strength. Whoever receives one such child, a person that is simple, a person who is lowly, a person who is needy, whoever receives one such person in my name, because that person is mine, right, receives me. He's pointing out a posture towards other people, receiving them in my name, right, receiving them in me, in spite of their weakness and their neediness and their lowliness. It's evidence that you have received me and my Father. In Christ, we are called to receive those who are weak and simple and lowly and needy. We ourselves are all of those things, and Christ receives us, right? Jesus says, all the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Whoever comes to Christ, he will never cast out. So it should be with his people, in his kingdom, in his church. Jesus knew who we were. He knew we were sinners and wretches and corrupt and ruined. And he received us and he died for us and he obeyed the law for us and he loved us. Let's look again to verses 13 to 16 of chapter 10 in considering this Love and humility toward others, receiving the weak. Again, you remember the scenario we thought about it just a few minutes ago. People are bringing their kids to Jesus and the disciples are like, look, Jesus doesn't have time for this. He doesn't have time for this. Stop doing that. Jesus rebukes them for stopping people from bringing the kids to him. And he says again in verses 14 and 15, let the children come, don't hinder them, For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. The kingdom of God belongs to people who are like these children who are coming to Jesus. It does not belong to those who are strong in their own eyes. It does not belong to those who trust in themselves and their own resourcefulness, their own stature, their own merit. It belongs not to people who think themselves to have what it takes to stand before God. It belongs to the meek. It belongs to the weak. It belongs to the needy who know that they're weak and who know that they're needy, who come in simple faith to the Savior, trusting that He can provide everything that they need. That's who the kingdom of God belongs to. This is how God works. He says this over and over and over again in Scripture from the witness of the Old Testament where he reminds Israel over and over again that it's not because you were large or great or strong that I chose you. Moses even tells the people that you were the smallest, you were the weakest amongst all the nations and God loves you because he loves you. 
No other reason than that. Deuteronomy chapter 7. We're told that God uses the weak things in the world to shame the strong and the foolish things in the world to shame the wise. He does not do things in the way that we would think as human beings. He doesn't save the elite. He doesn't save those who are strong in themselves and think that they can cut it before Him. He saves those who know themselves truly, that they're weak and needy and desperate. As we sing sometimes in this church, it's a great hymn, Come Ye Sinners, Poor and Needy, and we've sung this verse a number of times, and every time we do, I love it anew, where he says, the hymn writer says, We sing, Let not conscience make you linger, nor of fitness fondly dream. The only fitness he requires is to feel your need of him. It's this posture. I'm a sinner, I'm poor, and I'm needy. I'm coming to the Savior in simple faith, trusting that He can provide what I cannot. Just a brief comment here on Christ's posture towards children. I, I want to keep us moving forward. Jesus lovingly received children throughout His ministry. They were not too little for Him. They were not a waste of His time. It was worthwhile. He's tender. He's loving. So should we be as a church, right? I have a concern sometimes that Baptist churches think poorly about children. I'll just say that. Here at CBC, I mean, it's in the name. I mean, this is not a like, oh, shocker. We're covenantal in the way that we understand Scripture, Covenant Baptist Church, right? So we understand that God is a covenant-making and covenant-keeping God. And part of what that means for us is that we understand that God works through the covenants that he has made and he works through the institutions that he has founded, namely the church and the family. And while we may not baptize our children, we raise them in the context of the covenant community of the church. And we don't assume it in an arrogant way, but we trust God and anticipate that our children will come to faith in Christ. We live in such a way as a church that we invite them into the covenant community of the church and we invite them into the things that we do as a church. We don't create this ridiculous distinction of, oh, well, we're the regenerate ones over here and you're not regenerate. At least we can't tell yet. And so you're over there and we're over here. That is not helpful. Not helpful. We invite our children into the covenant community of the church, to participate in the life of the church in an external sense. And when they profess faith, they're baptized into the church. They become members of the church just like any of the adults or the older teens in this room. I could talk for a long time about that, but I'm going to refrain because we got more to cover. And I love you. Point four. Life in Christ's kingdom is characterized by charity toward other saints. Life in Christ's kingdom is characterized by charity toward other saints. Put your eyes on verse 38. John says to Jesus, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. Okay. There's somebody out there doing work in your name, Jesus, but he's not with our group here, and so we stopped him. Jesus responds, verse 39 and following, Don't stop someone who is in me doing work in my name just because he or she isn't following us. Right? And he goes on to say, nobody's going to do work in my name and then soon after speak evil of me. The one who is not against us is for us. So I think it's right for us to understand like in one sense an application for us. Well, we tried to stop them from doing the work they're doing because they're not following us. It's like, well, you know, they're not part of our tribe. Right? They're not maybe where we are theologically or whatever it may be. So we stop them from doing work in your name, Jesus. And Christ responds by saying, whoever is not against us is for us. Whoever is in me, whoever is a brother or sister is for us. We're on the same team. Verse 41, Christ basically says this, whoever loves you and does good to you because you too are of the household of God, Whoever loves you and does good to you because you are their brother or you are their sister will be commended for that good work. It's just a brief reflection for our purposes. We are called in Christ's kingdom to be charitable and loving 
toward our brothers and sisters, even when we disagree. Now, certainly, I don't want to be misunderstood here. We defend the gospel doggedly. We defend the truth. We point out error. We do so from Scripture. I mean, my goodness, the apostles do that all the time. They don't lack passion in defending the gospel. We've thought about that some lately. And when we do this, when we contend for the gospel and we defend the truth, when we point out error, we do so with love and we do so with charity. So, in other words, tone matters. It just does. Posture matters. So, a couple of thoughts here. The tendency to look down on other Christians, which, let's be honest, we all are prone to do. We tend to look down on other Christians who aren't where we are theologically, who understand things differently than we do, whose practice is different than ours. The tendency to look down on other Christians is a telltale sign of self-righteousness and a legalistic heart. The tendency to look down. Now, I'm not saying we don't point out error. Of course we do. We defend the truth, but we do so in such a way where we don't look down on other believers. You can point out an error in theology and doctrine without putting the person down. Second thing, and I'm going to explain what I mean before anybody walks out of the room. Truth not spoken in love ceases to be the truth. These are just reflections for us, right? Based on the things that Christ is saying here. Truth not spoken in love ceases to be the truth. What I mean by that is not that truth is relative. Truth is objective and absolute. God has revealed it in Scripture. But biblically speaking, when we say something that might be right doctrinally with a heart posture that is way off, we cease to speak like the whole picture of what biblical truth is. We actually misrepresent God and we misrepresent the truth of God when our posture is just arrogant, condescending, and mean, spirited. We're argumentative or whatever. I could talk a long time about this. This matters a lot too because we're in a reformed church, right? And so often the reformed, sadly, have a terrible reputation for being incredibly arrogant and condescending. It need not be that way. This kind of theology produces compassion. And we ought to be the most humble people on the planet because we understand that anything we get right from Scripture is all because of the Holy Spirit, has nothing to do with us. So may God give us awareness and may God give us grace. Point number five, life in Christ's kingdom entails fleeing from sin and pursuing obedience. Life in Christ's kingdom entails fleeing from sin and pursuing obedience. Put your eyes on verse 42. Jesus uses quite strong words about how bad it is to cause one of his people to stumble into sin. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin. And by little ones, he doesn't mean a child. He means a, a, a precious one of his, right? A, a Christian. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. That's serious business. Them are fighting words, right? Then he goes on in verses 43 and 47 to use equally strong language about the seriousness of sin. He talks about if your hand causes you to sin. So if the things you're doing with your hands are causing you to sin, get rid of it. If your feet, if where you're going and the things that you're doing with your feet are causing you to sin, get rid of it. If the things that you're looking at with your eyes and that you're seeing and you're gazing upon are causing you to sin, get rid of it. We are to flee, in other words, like brief paraphrase of those verses, flee from sin at any cost. Flee from sin at any cost. Why? Because sin is never worth it. And because Jesus and the life that he gives is always worth it. Right? This is not white-knuckle religion. Oh, let me just... You know, grit my teeth and do this, and I have no idea why. I guess Jesus said so, so I'll battle sin. No. Jesus is always right, yes and amen. 
But sin is never worth it. And Christ is always worth it. Jesus goes on in verse 48 to speak of hell. He says of those who will be there, end of verse 47, he says, you know, thrown into hell where, verse 48, the worm doesn't die and the fire is not quenched. He also calls hell the unquenchable fire in verse 43. Just a very brief observation for those that may wrestle with the eternality of hell. That kind of language is replete throughout Scripture. You know, that it's an unquenchable flame and the torment doesn't end, right? The Bible is quite clear on that. Then Jesus is going to say some other things in verse 49 and 50. He tells us in verse 49, he speaks here of our purification. He says, we will all be salted with fire. So Leviticus chapter 2 and other places in the Old Testament, we know that the sacrifices offered at the altar in the temple were seasoned, or in the tabernacle later the temple, were seasoned with salt, right? We will be seasoned with fire, not salt, Jesus says. Think of the language that God uses often about purifying us by fire like fine metal, right? Where we're purified, we are consecrated by fire. Through that fire, through trial and various means that the Lord ordains, He burns the dross away from our lives. We sing about that in a hymn even, like how firm a foundation. When through fiery trial thy pathway shall lie, right? My grace all sufficient will be thy supply. And then He talks about His good purposes and intentions in refining us that way. Sin will be purged from your life. God will see to that, right? Verse 50 now. Jesus is going to talk about us having salt now in ourselves. So this is very similar to like when he tells us to be salt and light. Salt, as many may know, was a vital preserving agent in Christ's day and basically for all of human history until refrigeration, right? So when Jesus says salt is good, if salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? The answer, you're not going to do that. Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. So, in some amazing way, our imperfect but real Christian lives have this kind of preserving salt-like effect in the world. As we, when he says, be at peace with one another, and if you think about the thing that Christ in his earthly ministry exhorts his followers to more than anything, what is it? Love each other. The apostles pick that banner up too and constantly talk about it. Like, the greatest command in terms of how we live with each other is that, love each other. So somehow, through our living a Christian life as a fallen sinner, trusting Christ in the community of the church, loving each other, it has a kind of preserving effect in the world. Now, that blows my mind. Just looking at the world and the church and everything else, it's like that clearly has to be the work of God. All right, so I want to reflect with you again for just a moment, and I appreciate you tracking with me. We're taking on quite a bit today. This matters for me. I mean, even this, this text here, verse 20, 42, excuse me, through 50, fleeing from sin and pursuing obedience. We often talk about the gospel here. We do all the time. It kind of permeates everything we do on purpose. We talk a lot about the rest that we have in Christ. We often refute the age-old objections raised against the gospel, right? I get really upset about that when people say, well, the gospel, if you preach it that way and tell people it's over and nothing left to be done and all that, it's going to produce lawlessness to which we always say no way. What we, and by we, I mean the pastors of CBC, never mean, ever mean, is okay, like rest in Christ means sit back, relax, and live in sin. Never. Sit back, Relax, live in sin is not what we ever mean because that would be foolish and absurd. All right, so we should, as we've already said, flee from sin. Flip side, we should pursue obedience. Real talk, all right? Let's just reason together for a moment, biblically. Real talk, sin is terrible. We all agree, right? Sin is terrible. God has told us that. Jesus, in our text, speaks about sin in a way that is deadly serious. He does not treat it lightly, nor does he offer a simple solution. Because of our remaining corruption, that internal war we talk about, the reality of the flesh, we, at times, find sin attractive. Sin looks really good 
to our flesh on the front end of things. All we can see sometimes is the satisfaction, the gratification, the pleasure, the whatever. I mean, there's a reason that sin is wildly popular, right? But in the end, brothers and sisters, friends, in the end, as good as it may look, it brings nothing but wreckage and pain and ruin and shame and disaster in the end. Serious question. When has sin ever produced anything good in your life? Maybe a, a seriously, fleeting moment of something enjoyable. Okay, fine. When has it ever produced anything lastingly good in your life? Ever. It has not. So sin is terrible. Flee from it. It's terrible for your life and it dishonors God. Flip side. Another like shocking statement I know. Obedience is good. Obedience is good. It's not a dirty word. So a lot of times people, when they really come to like grasp the gospel, this soul of like faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone, it's over gospel. People have this moment of like disorientation. It's like they're weightless, like in outer space or something. Like my whole world's been rocked by it. They sometimes ask like legitimately because I'm trying to understand because my whole life I've been told to obey so I don't go to hell. I've been told to obey so that I'll earn something before God. And you're telling me none of that's possible now. So, like, why do I obey then, bro? It's a legitimate wrestling question. And with all sensitivity, I want to kind of pivot that in that moment and say, friend, the burden of proof is with you in in asking that question, why obey? The question biblically for the Christian is actually a different one. Why not obey? Why not obey? Romans 6, right? Should we sin all the more that grace may abound? By no means. Why? Because you have been united to Christ by faith. You're in Jesus now. You've been delivered from the dominion of sin. You're no longer a slave to it anymore. You're not under the law anymore. You're now under grace. You have become obedient from the heart. Obey because we can now. You couldn't before. You can now. We have become obedient from the heart. Obey because you want to now. You didn't used to. So why obey? Because you can. Because you want to. You actually don't want to sin now. You find your sin detestable. You didn't before. Used to be fun. Now I'm wrecked. Okay. Like that's real. We find sin detestable in our inner being. We obey because of gratitude to God. What he's done for us. In Christ, we obey out of joy because it's good when we do. It brings us joy. We delight in the law of God. Like, for example, if I were to look at the husbands in the room today and I were to say, hey, guys, love your wife. How many would raise their hand and say, man, that sounds terrible. I don't want to love my wife. Of course, you're not going to say that. It's like, yes, I want to love my wife. Right. It's good. And we delight in it. Abstain from immorality. Yes, I don't want to engage in immorality. We obey in addition because we're safe, because we have peace with God and because we're secure. Peace motivates us. And it's amazing. Safety motivates us. All right, and we obey because it's really, really good for your life. It's really good for your life. And I'm going to say this too. This is kind of the missing piece so often when we talk about our obedience. It's really, really, really good for your neighbor when you obey and when I obey God's commands. Let me put it to you this way. God doesn't need your good works, but your neighbor sure does. God doesn't need your good works. Your neighbor does. Is God honored? Yes. But does he need them? No. Your neighbor does need them. Your spouse and your kids and your brothers and sisters in the church, your co-workers, your friends need your good works for their lives, right? That be at peace with one another peace in verse 50 is not insignificant. Jesus tells us that our love and peace with one another is important. And it is interesting, as I alluded to earlier, that 
loving one another is not often very high on that kind of obedience list. There's often like abstinence from sins and things like that. But love for each other is not at the top of the list, which it seems to be for Christ. So it's just an interesting observation that we could talk about another time. This has been a long sermon already, and we're going to go through point six briefly. Life in Christ's kingdom involves upholding marriage. Life in Christ's kingdom involves upholding marriage. Chapter 10, verse 1. Jesus is teaching as he normally does, we're told. Verse 2, Pharisees come up to him, not with good intentions, but to test him. That's what they typically do. They want to catch him. So don't miss that. They ask, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Let's see what he does with this one. Jesus, brilliant as he always is, turns it right back on them. He says, well, what did, what did Moses say to you? What did Moses tell you? And they answer, well, you know, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and send his wife away. They're referencing Deuteronomy 24. But then Jesus goes after their hearts as he always does. Okay, that's true. Moses did allow that. Moses did write that by the inspiration of the Spirit. True. But it's because of the hardness of man's heart that that was written. Originally, it was not so. And he goes on to tell us in verses 6 through 9, he goes on to tell us of God's original intention and design in marriage. Namely, that it is a covenant not to be severed. So then the disciples and Jesus go away. Verse 10. In the house, again, the disciples ask him about the matter. And then he explains to them that a person who divorces his or her spouse and marries another person commits adultery. Now, Again, this is kind of my holistic presentation of what Christ is saying here. This is not all that Jesus says about divorce, right? The other gospel writers record other things that he said about divorce. And it's not all that the New Testament has to say about divorce either. So let's just talk for a moment because I would feel irresponsible not addressing this in this text. Jesus in Matthew 19, verse 9 in particular, gives the caveat that divorce on the grounds of sexual immorality is permissible. That, that matters. Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, also gives another caveat that divorce is also permissible on the grounds of abandonment. And abandonment could look a number of ways, including like abuse, most would understand, and also including like intentional deprivation of a spouse's marital rights. Okay. So we at this church are going to talk a little bit about just how the elders understand this. Jesus and the New Testament writers are in complete agreement about the main point here. Though. The Pharisees aim to catch Jesus in a pickle as to whether divorce is legit or not. And the main point of what Christ is saying is, yes, because of the hardness of man's heart, divorce exists. But it was never God's design. So in other words, Jesus and the New Testament apostles are in agreement that divorce is bad. So because of all of these texts that I've mentioned, the elders here at CBC understand that divorce is permissible on particular biblical grounds, but it's something that we would basically never counsel people to do with the exception of if we understand one of the spouses to be in danger, like in real harm's way. That's very different, right? But in general, we want to see people seek reconciliation because that's the clear pattern of Scripture. At the same time, divorce is not the unpardonable sin. It matters that that be said. Because that's like divorce is like a scarlet letter that people wear around in the church sometimes. Marriages fall apart in a fallen world amongst fallen people, even in the church, right? And so there's grace for that. Marriage points to the covenant relationship that God has with us, and that's what makes it unique. And sometimes this is what I think is good for us to understand about marriage, is that ultimately it's a gospel presentation in this sense. Our marriages often fall apart because they're between two covenant breakers. But God, his marriage to us, his people, it won't ever fall apart because he always remains faithful, even when we are faithless. Like God is not a covenant breaker. We might be, but he overcomes that. That's the good news of what God has done for us in Christ. Much more that we could say about marriage, friends, and we'll trust that there will be other opportunities. I'll be at the door after the service if you have any questions. I am prepared to chat with you about anything that may have been raised through any of that presentation. Put your eyes finally on verse 16. We're ending our time. Jesus takes the children that are coming to him. Not only does he say, don't hinder them, let them come. To such belong the kingdom of God. Whoever doesn't receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. 
He takes children in his arms and he blesses them and he lays his hands on them. Jesus takes the weak and the lowly into his arms. He receives sinners like you and me. Not because we're worth anything on our own, but because he is a loving and gentle and merciful savior. We're going to sing the king of love around the Lord's table today. In verse three, we read and sing these words, perverse and foolish oft I strayed and yet in love he sought me and on his shoulder gently laid and home rejoicing brought me. Thanks be to God for Jesus, the gentle and lowly and loving Savior that we have. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we trust that you will continue to work by your spirit through the preaching of your word as imperfectly as it may have been done. We pray that you would take the water not only of my efforts, but even the water of our worship this morning and turn it into wine because you can. We pray, God, that you would continue to work in us by your spirit, that you would continue to conform us into the image of Christ. We pray that you would sustain our faith and we pray that you would do that even through the Lord's table as we turn our attention to that now. We pray in Christ's name, amen.